You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. And it does introduce our topic this morning and our text as well. But first of all, I want to make an important announcement for some of you. Uh, by the way, we are up live streaming. Uh, yes. We were not able to live stream during the worship time because all kinds of crazy things happened. And uh, so we are, as I understand, we're, we're up. We're, we're up. We're running. We're live for, Welcome all, out there. for all of our folks who are, are streaming this this morning. And for your sake, those of you that do not yet feel comfortable coming back into the gathering, I want you to know that we have... Uh, as of this Sunday, have opened up a, a COVID-free section in the auditorium because we do have some people who have had the virus and have recovered and carry the antibodies. And they are actually selling seats yep. n- next to them, which are the highest or the safest, safest. seats in the house. Yep. And so if you would contact, uh, come in one, uh, with one of them, then I'm sure that for the right price, they would let you sit next to them and be totally safe. Uh, I don't mean to make light, but we do have to laugh, right? We do. Uh, we still have to laugh. Um, I do also want to address one thing, uh, another sizable elephant in the room, uh, to say to you that I did not take out my nose ring. <laughs> yes, it's stuffed I just up have in it there and it's pushed, got boogers all over it. It's got it just... pushed up in my nose. I didn't want to be a distraction, <laughs> and so uh, it's still there. Okay, well, you could have gone all day without telling us that. We would have been just fine with it. Okay, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 4. By the way, I'm sitting in one of those safe seats in the auditorium this morning That's because right. my compatriot here has already had the virus and has recovered, and, uh, and so I'm glad to be able to sit next to him. I'm totally and completely safe. This is the safest place to at be. At least from the virus. Absolutely. There may be other issues that are going on, but, but it, at least I don't think the other issues are actually catching. I've already gone through that phase in my life, yep. and so I'm safe from... Uh, from all that. Of it, all of it. Uh, Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're turning to this text this morning because it really addresses a very, very uh, important issue that we are facing uh, because it marks a turning point. In the book of Acts is a story of the birth of the church and the growth of the church as they move through and then ultimately the gospel going out to the known world. Well, in Acts chapter 4, There is a turning point from something that has been obvious and evident in the first three three chapters for the early church. In chapter two, we're given, or in chapter one, we're given the the account of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, ascending to the right hand of the Father. Then in chapter two, the promise of Joel and the prophet Joel and the promise that Jesus had given that the Holy Spirit would come uh, and and dwell permanently happened on the day of Pentecost. and the Apostle Peter uh, preached there, and thousands came to Christ. And, and so all of these things have been going on. And the new believers, chapter 2 tells us, after that, were meeting house to house and in the temple. And, and, and so, in other words, they were still welcome in the Jewish temple. And so they had freedom to move around in Jerusalem and were well-received in Jerusalem. And then chapter 3 of the book of Acts, Peter and John go to the temple because, as I said, they're still welcome at the temple. And there they come across a lame man, and by the power of God and by the power of Jesus that had invested in the apostles to be able to heal on demand as Jesus had had, he invested that in the apostles. 
Then Peter actually spoke and the lame man was healed. And then Peter once again uses that opportunity to turn and present the gospel of Jesus, that this was done by the power of Christ who was crucified and raised from the dead, and more people are are coming to Christ, and and it's just incredible what's been going on. But after this happens with the lame man and Peter preaching this question, is all of a sudden things begin to change, things begin to go downhill. In other words, the first persecution of the early church and Christians happens in Acts chapter 4 with Peter and John. And the question on the table, obviously, is this is a transition, and the question is, how are they going to handle this change? In other words, when you're, they've been popular up to this point. They've had freedom to move up to this point. With, but when the storm clouds began to gather and when the resistance began to rise, the question for them and the question for us is, how are they going to respond to that? What are they going to do? And that is a valid question for us today in America because their day was not unlike our day today as it relates to how Christians interact in our culture for completely different reasons, but with the same result. And here's what I mean by that. They lived in a pre-Christian culture, okay? In other words, the, the, the Christian message had not been able to permeate culture. And so when, when, when they began to preach Christ, they were preaching it in a culture to which that message of Christ was foreign. It was brand new, and it, in fact, challenged everything that their culture stood for. So they were dealing with this issue in what we call a pre-Christian culture. Today in America... We are living in what all scholars typically will call it a post-Christian culture. In other words, we are past our culture being indoctrinated in Christian thought. We are beyond that today. Now, by saying that, I'm not indicating that America was ever a Christian nation. We were not. I've said that over and over. We were, our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Yes, it was, but it was never presumed to be a Christian nation. But because it was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles for centuries, for the first centuries, our nation was Christian friendly, okay? That the, the gospel did not, uh, did not face government opposition. The, the gospel didn't really face cultural opposition. There were many people that didn't respond to the gospel, but our nation at least was a, a gospel-friendly culture. But over about the last 100 years, give or take, there began to be a drift away from that friendliness to the Christian message. And it has come to the point now where we are living in what scholars call a full-blown post-Christian culture. In other words, our culture is no longer Christian friendly. Our culture has moved, for the most part, away from the founding principles, Judeo-Christian principles, in so many areas. And increasingly, the Christian message now is challenging the post-Christian culture we live in, just as the Christian message challenged the pre-Christian culture into which Jesus was born and the disciples and the apostles 
went out. It challenges everything in our culture, basically. Let me give you just a a couple of things. It challenges the basic Christian principles about life. Our culture has gone away from the sanctity of life and is actually even hostile to the message of the sanctity of life. the, The Christian conviction about marriage and what genuine marriage is, how God created marriage, is opposite of our post-Christian culture, and our culture is, for the most part, hostile to us whenever we try to promote the biblical view of marriage. About sexuality, our culture has moved beyond, just as the pre-Christian culture, away from a, a Christian value of what sexuality is and how that sexuality is to be expressed, and it is hostile to our definition of biblical sexuality, about the whole topic of creation and how everything came into being. Our message, the Christian message, runs contrary to our post-Christian culture's conviction about that. And those are just four things that I've mentioned. We could just go down the list. Virtually all of them indicates to us that we are not living in a Christian-friendly culture. We are living in a post-Christian culture, and our culture is increasingly hostile to the Christian marriage. So everywhere we turn, we find ourselves in a conflict between the values of our culture and the values of our faith, just as those first Christians did as they took the gospel message out into a pre-Christian culture. So really, ultimately, Our culture today in American life, in the quarter of a century that we have been, or the 200 and a quarter of a millennia that we have been in existence, has never been more like the first century culture than it is today. They were pre-Christian, we are post-Christian. And the question on the table for us this morning is how are we to respond in a post-Christian culture? What are we to do? And we're going to take our our, our, our cue from how Peter and John did in chapter 4, how they handled this issue in a pre-Christian culture. And the first thing that Derek is going to talk about is that we are to do this. We are to, we are to have a witness that has compassion for people. That's right. Compassion for people. If you, if you begin in, in Acts chapter 4, um, there are some, some pretty big hitters that show up onto the scene. The captain of the guard, the Sadducees, if you remember in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, you have two main groups. James is going to talk a little bit more about this in a little while, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees are one of them. They're on the scene as well, and it says that they arrest Peter and John. Verse 2 tells us why, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want you to hold on to that because that's an important detail. Why were they arrested? Teaching about the resurrection. That's, that's the issue on the table. That's why they're brought in. So they're arrested and uh, they're brought to trial, but Peter doesn't catch on. He thinks that the reason they're being arrested has to do with something else. What James just talked about a moment ago, which happened back in Acts chapter 3. They heal a cripple man. There's a man who, who was brought to the, uh, the gate Uh, right where the temple was every morning. He was carried there on the back of someone else and he was sat down there so he could beg for alms because he had no way to work because he had been crippled since he was born. Everyone knew him as a crippled man. They knew that this man had never walked in his entire life. And Peter begins uh, talking with him. Peter and John begin talking with him. In Acts chapter three, verse six, it says, uh, Peter tells him, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. 
And then it says, by seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. So this man goes from being crippled his entire life to jumping and running around, totally healed. Verse 22 actually tells us that he was 40 years old. So this man had been alive for 40 years, 40 years a cripple. That's not all that old. That's not all that old, no, but, no, no. but when, you consider, when you consider for a moment how 40 years from birth to that point, never having used your legs, you have no muscle development. You have no structures in place to help you stand up. And immediately the man is not only standing, he's running around and he's jumping, right? He's doing athletic things. Now come back to chapter four. They've been arrested. They're sitting on trial. The elders, the scribes, the high priest are all there. Peter even asks them in verses eight through 10, are we on trial today because of the benefit done to a sick man as to how he was made well? And they even bring in the healed men. And they're like, look, here's the guy. Look, we all knew he was a cripple. He's always been a cripple. And look at him. He's running and jumping around. And verse 14 tells us, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Can't deny that. They have nothing to say. I mean, yeah, there's nothing to argue. They confer a little longer and then check this out. This is what they say to them. We command you to no longer speak or teach of any man regarding Jesus. Now, I want you to come back to what I said a moment ago here. There's more to say about this passage, and James is going to cover more of it, but I want us to park here for a moment and come back to what I said. Why were they arrested? It was because they were teaching about the resurrection. Now, I want you to consider the differences here between these two groups of people, the disciples and the religious leaders. We have two groups of people in this story, and there is a stark difference between the two. What have the disciples done? What have they done? What are they guilty of? Healing someone, right? Caring for a human being. Caring for a human being. Fully healing a crippled man. This is, by the way, I, you know, not to go on a, on a side note tangent, this is why I'm very skeptical of charismatic, particular charismatic teachers who do these massive healing crusades. Because what you find, they're typically on TV, and, and what you find in them is uh, a man or a woman being rolled out in a wheelchair and being healed, and then them walking off the stage with like a cane. <laughs> and it's like, well... Well, that's better than a wheelchair. Did they only partially heal him? <laughs> why, why didn't they just give him the full treatment? Yeah. And anytime you, you read about healing in the New Testament, it is fully and completely healed. Instantaneous. Instantaneous, on the moment, on demand, fully healed. This guy didn't limp off. He went running and jumping. He looked great. He was fully healed. Jesus gave the apostles full authority, fully and, and, and completely to heal whoever they chose to heal on demand. Now, the question is why? Why did he do that? Why did he give them that power? To authenticate the gospel that they were proclaiming. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you are in your favorite restaurant. You're having a meal, and a man stands up in the middle of the room, and he begins to uh, loudly proclaim some religious message. What is your thought immediately of this guy? He must be crazy. <laughs> what is this guy doing? I'm just trying to eat an omelet, right? <laughs> what? Now, now, what if in the midst of all of that, he walks over to a paralyzed person that you know has been paralyzed his whole life, and he grabs him by the hand and says, in the name of Jesus, get up. And he begins to get up and run around and jump. How interested are you in what he's saying now? Mm 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, at least a little more interested, right? Because <laughs> normal people, listen, normal people aren't able to do that. That's a supernatural thing. That's a miracle. And so, again, Jesus gives this power to his apostles to authenticate the message that they are proclaiming. What's the message? The resurrection. What were they arrested for? The resurrection. Now, so here's the catch. Get this. There's a difference between these two groups of people. They, these disciples, cared about people. They cared about the man. They had compassion for the man. The religious leaders couldn't have cared less about the man. They didn't even want to talk about the man. They wanted to immediately begin arguing about theology. Now, there's a reason for this, and I just want to give you, again, a little bit of history here. James is going to say more, again, about these, these groups of people, but I want to say one thing specifically about the Sadducees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, there's one humongous difference between these two groups of people. The Pharisees believed and taught the entire Old Testament. So if you have your Bible and you look starting at Genesis all the way to Malachi, the Pharisees believed in all of that. The they law were, and the prophets. The law and the prophets. They were all about it. The Sadducees stopped reading after Deuteronomy. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the writings. Now, here's why that's significant. The resurrection is talked about in the Old Testament. Anyone know where it's talked about? In the prophets. In the prophets. Daniel is specifically where we get this idea of a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, for the Sadducee, the, the, the idea of resurrection was foreign and it was heretical because it wasn't found in Moses' books, Moses' writings. And so when they hear these guys are teaching this doctrine of resurrection, it immediately grates against everything that they believe and think. And so they get upset, they begin arguing theology, they have them arrested, and they bring them to trial. So there is a, there is a marked difference here, and I, and I don't want you to miss this. The disciples, the people of God, their focus is people. We care about people. The religious leaders, all they want to do is argue facts. Peter and John are, are, are saying, are, are we being arrested for healing this man? And the leaders are going, we don't even care about that man. <laughs> we want you to stop talking about resurrection. Now come back to the point for a moment. Let's, let's apply this. How are we to live as Christians in a post-Christian America? Well, for one, we're to do it with compassion for people. We're to do it with compassion for people. We are to be witnesses of Jesus and his resurrection, but we're to do it with compassion. Here, here's the reality. If we live in a post-Christian America, if we have gone from Christian-friendly to Christian-hostile, then a bunch of theological facts aren't going to get you very far with people. Because people reject your theological facts. We cannot fall into the trap of seeing our Christian witness as nothing more than a bunch of facts about the Bible. In other words, don't focus on preaching, focus on people. Mm -hmm. Focus on people. Evangelism is about people. Preaching is for us, the church. And what's going to, in this post-Christian culture, authenticate the gospel yes. more and more yes. and more is as they see the church not just caring about a message, but caring, caring about, about people. people, caring about ministering to the hurts and the wounds and the lives of people. Which is what Jesus was all about. What does 1 Timothy 1.15 say? Christ came into the world to establish theological truth. <laughs> no. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The gospel is not about rituals and traditions, it's about people. Let me give you a controversial truth, and I want you to, you're gonna hear this and go, wait a minute, but I want you to follow me here for a moment, because it is true. 
Jesus did not die for the gospel. Jesus died for people. Jesus did not die for the gospel. Jesus died for people, and his death for sinners is the gospel. That is the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Jesus did not die for good news. His death is good news. For people. Because his death is for sinners. And who are sinners? All of us, right, exactly. Of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Thank you. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. So so understand this, that as we go into this post-Christian world and, and we live out our witness for Christ, our focus must be showing compassion for people, witnessing the resurrection, but doing it compassionately. And if you will focus on people and let the Holy Spirit do His work, you'll see true kingdom ministry happen in ways that you could not on your own accomplish. And we've always said around here, we've always known that our greatest arm of evangelism is our help, hope, and healing ministry, is our hospital church ministry, because people will come to receive help in their life who don't even know our Savior. But what we've seen through the years is because they find a church that cares about helping them in their marriage or cares about helping them in their their addiction or what are their destructive behaviors, then they come here not knowing Christ, but in that context, they come to know Jesus. Just as in the pre-Christian culture, it was the physical miracles that authenticated the gospel for the apostles which is focused on people as Jesus was, then as we continue that, we may not be doing physical miracles as the apostles did, but we get to see life change miracles and minister Amen. to people, and that authenticates the gospel. Are Amen. you getting that? Are you? And the deeper we move into our post-Christian culture, more and more is that going to be important because people are not really interested in Christ, but they are interested in being cared for. And when they are cared for, we build a bridge then into their life well, with the gospel. And let me just say this. I don't, want to, I don't want to run out of time here, but okay. We already have. It's fine. <laughs> James has put together, and for those of you who have seen it, you know, an incredible video series called The Fearless Series about the sexual abuse of women. So, again, think about this from this vantage point. We live in a post-Christian America. People are growing hostile towards all the things that we believe regarding marriage, sexuality, creation, life, all the things that James just mentioned. But do you think any of those things, any of those arguments are on the mind of a woman who just wants to heal from being sexually abused? Couldn't care less about it. No. They just want, they just want freedom from they the pain help. they feel. So if we can get away from that and come to, hey, I want to take your hand and walk with you through this journey of healing from this unspeakable pain that you feel. And when they ask the question why, then that's the place for the gospel. Because Jesus loves you and so do I, and he died for you. Because of Jesus. Yeah. So let's move on. Yeah. The second thing that they did, and the second thing we must do, do and the way we must respond is not only with a compassionate witness, but with a convicted, convicted witness. witness. Now, the two are not contradictory. No. 
It seems oftentimes in churches when there is a strong conviction of the gospel and the witness, there's not a lot of compassion for people. It's just about the message. And then oftentimes we find in churches where there's a great deal of compassion, there's no conviction about the gospel. Yeah. But the both are very, very important. They were a part of how Jesus did work, and they were what he told his apostles to do. Now, as Derek mentioned, there were three groups of individuals who were hostile, as it were, to the, uh, Peter and John. First of all, it mentions the priests. These were the Levites who were in charge of all of the ministrations of the temple, all of his activities. Why would they oppose Peter and John? Because their power and their position was being threatened. Because if the people did, in fact, buy into this message of, the, of Jesus and of the resurrection, then they would be turning away from the priest and their dependence upon them. So the priest opposed this because their position was being threatened, their religious position. Then there was the captain of the guard. The, the temple had guards around it because it was to be a place of worship and of quietness. And, and the guard, the temple guard's job was to keep order around the temple. And so if a riot broke out, if there was some disturbance, then it was his job to stop it. And, and, and if he didn't, then his job was going to be on the line. So he opposed this going on, not necessarily because of the message or because of the lame man who'd been healed. It was his job on the line and he needed to shut this thing down. And so he's opposing Peter and John. But then the third group is the Sadducees, whom Derek has already mentioned. The Sadducees were the Jewish religious intellectuals, okay? They were also the religious liberals. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two main groups in, in ancient Israel. The Pharisees were considered to be the religious conservatives. The Sadducees saw themselves as more sophisticated than that and a cut above, more of an intellectual uh, than, than the conservatives. And nothing has really changed, right? Liberals today kind of view themselves as having the high moral ground and more intellectual. And how can you be so stupid to believe those conservative values? Well, it was true even between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what stirred the Sadducees up is in verse 2, as Derek indicated, they were, they were greatly disturbed because Peter and John were just proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, what that meant is that they were proclaiming not only that Jesus had been resurrected, which the Sadducees de denied, but that people who come to Christ would also have the promise of resurrection. resurrection. And as Derek said, that came into G uh, Jewish thought with the prophets, not with the Torah. And because the Sadducees didn't even read the prophets, they only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, then they rejected the entire concept of resurrection. To them, it was it was foolishness, it was backwoods, or, or however you want to say it. Their idea was that when you died, you were dead, right. okay? So everyone was opposed to Peter and John and the message of Christ, but they were opposed for different reasons. The captain of the guard, because it was his job on line. The priest, because their position of, 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 over the, the people was on the line. The Sadducees, because it violated their theological structure. And by the way, they denied the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> now, the first time I ever heard that, I kicked Woo. the flats out of my cradle. That is an old one. If you've not heard that, then you, didn't, you hadn't been around a church very long. And so we look at that, and we can look at that pre-Christian culture, and we can look at that post-Christian culture, and we can see that both are opposed to the gospel for all of the various 
reasons. The gospel today in our culture is also opposed and opposed for a lot of different reasons, but it is increasingly being resisted nonetheless. Some people in our day resist the gospel for political reasons because it rejects, it runs contrary to their political philosophy. Some resist the gospel in our post-Christian culture for moral reasons because the gospel flies right in the face of a post-Christian view of morality and how that is to be lived out. Some people today reject the gospel for social reasons because it rejects their, their idea of a proper construct of society. The reasons are, are, are varied and the reasons are many, but the point is that our post-Christian culture opposes the gospel. So the question is, how do we respond? Well, we respond with compassion for people. The gospel is authenticated as the church is, more, is about more than just the message, but is about people. But the message is important. That's right. The message is important. So we look at Peter and John when they were confronted in this. How did they respond? They responded with conviction. That's right. Now understand this, folks. Though we are to be compassionate for people, to care about people, that does not mean that we are not to have strong conviction about the Christian message. Now, once again, in this post-Christian culture, are we not constantly under pressure to water down the message in order to make it more palatable in our post-Christian culture? to water it down. And we see many places, many churches, many denominations, many individual Christians who simply refuse to stand their ground on the essence of the gospel because of this pressure to make it more palatable. I love though, Peter and John who are compassionate about this man, how they respond when they're told to quit speaking about Jesus and about the resurrection. In verse 8 and 10, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known. Uh-oh, they're about to state something without reservation, aren't they? Let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, <laughs> whom That's God funny. raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands before you today in good health. Wow, there's not a lot of watering down of the gospel in that statement. At all. It is very, very clear. You see, folks, today, in our post-Christian culture, we are not opposed if we are willing to water down the truth. The churches in our culture that are only all about social issues and are not about gospel issues are not being opposed in our culture. They are being welcomed into our culture. It is only those churches like ours who stand upon the conviction of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that finds opposition. If we are willing to say in our culture, well, Jesus is not the only way to God. He is just one way to God. 
And there are many ways. Well, we don't have a problem, do we? Our culture is very receptive of that. But if we stand on conviction and say the very same thing that Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All of a sudden, that's a problem, isn't it? That's right. As long as we'll say, hey, you got your way, I got my way, everybody's got their truth. Well, then our culture embraces that. But when someone says, no, there is only one way, there is only one truth, there is only one life, and that is Jesus Christ. Are you with me? You see, there is this constant pressure on us to water down the gospel message. And Peter and John refused to do so when they were confronted. Can I say something about that? Sure. I think we, we, get, we get nailed a lot, the, the church does, for being too exclusive, right? You're just too exclusive. What do you mean there's only one way to heaven? You, you need to be more inclusive like the rest of the world. And, and I want you to understand that that is a lie. Um, it is true that we are exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. The Bible is exclusive. But we are no more exclusive than the world is. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you were to go out into the world and, and say... Um, you know, that, that you believe that all roads lead to heaven, and you come into a, let's say, a, a church that accepts all roads lead to heaven, and then you have, I don't know, bad pizza one night, or, or, or I don't know, whatever it is, and you get up, and you come in the next morning, and you say, you know what, I think we're wrong. I, I, think, I think Jesus is the only way to heaven. They're not going to be very tolerant of that. Yeah, how long before they kick you out? Because see, here's the, the, the reality for the world. All roads lead to heaven, and we're totally inclusive as long as you also believe all roads lead to heaven. Right. <laughs> but the moment that you think differently than we do, how quickly do they become as exclusive as we are? You see, it's, it's, a, it's a facade. They're not inclusive. No one is inclusive. You think like we do, or you're out. We include you if you think like we do. Yeah. Which we say, <laughs> we include you if you think like we do right? Because this is what Jesus said. We don't have an option with this. We right. didn't create this message. No. You have created your message of inclusion by your definition of it, but we did not create this message. Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Savior created this message. We do not have the option of veering from that. So yes, we are all very exclusive in what we believe. And they're just as dogmatic about it. And they're just as dogmatic as we are. Now, the, the, the question is, which one is the truth? The one that we proclaim is created by God the Father and Jesus the Son or the one that culture has created. So when we go out in the world, if we were just be willing to ignore the message of sin and just focus on love, 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 well, then our culture is not going to resist us. We're going to be very popular yep. because sin is the bad news, right? That's right. And here's, we've heard me say this many, many times before. We have to understand the bad news before we can understand the, the need news. for the good news, which is what gospel, euangelion, means the good message is. If there is no message of bad news, well, there is not need for good news. And so when churches, when Christians, because of the pressure of our culture, don't be talking about sin. When we do that, then we don't have anything left because there's no good news after that. No. There is no good news to counter that bad news. If we ignore the centrality of Jesus Christ, his death, 
his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his ultimate return to receive all who are in him for eternity, if we ignore that centrality, then there will not be pressure from our culture. Because then Jesus becomes another way, just a good teacher who's one of many good teachers historically, just another crusader for social justice. And that is what liberals have done to Jesus in our culture. They have turned him into just another social crusader who came to teach us and came to model for us social issues and how to love everyone. And Jesus did those things, but Jesus did so much more than those things. Jesus provided a perfect sacrifice for sinners. Are you with us? We ain't going to get through. That's all right. Are y'all willing to hang around for a few extra minutes? Are you having as much fun as we are? Okay, so our, we are to respond in our culture post-Christian with a compassionate witness, but also with a convicted witness. Convicted witness, folks. We cannot walk back from the message when culture pushes us. That's right. Third, we do with a, a controlled mission. A, contr- a controlled witness. Can you yeah. do this fast? I'll do it fast. Yeah. What do I mean by a controlled witness? No, probably not. What do I mean by a controlled witness? I mean that we have to have control over ourselves, our emotions, our body language. We control to the best of our ability how we are being understood. Right? So we have compassion for people. We speak with conviction, but we do it in a controlled manner. Notice Peter's response. He's very level-headed. He's not mad. He's not, he's not upset. He's not agitated. He's very controlled. He does not withhold truth. It is a convicted witness, but he does so in a controlled way. I love what he says in verses 19 through 20. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to give you heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I mean, it's just very straight to the point. It's convicted and controlled. Now look, they had been wrongfully arrested. They did not commit a crime. They did nothing wrong. In fact, verse 21 even tells us when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. <laughs> it wasn't anything wrong. They hadn't done anything. Now, it would have been, can we just agree on this for a minute? It would have been very easy to get mad about this. It would have been very easy to be angry about this. If you're Peter and John, I'd be ticked off. Just wasted all my time. You arrested me for nothing. And whether you feel you've been wronged or you've actually been wrong, it is very easy to give in to this spirit of offense and lose control. And there is the issue. The issue is not being angry at unrighteousness. We are commanded to be angry at unrighteousness. God himself is angry at sin and unrighteousness. The problem is when we lose control and we react rather than we respond. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. So do not hear me saying that you shouldn't get angry when you're wrong. In a post-Christian America, the likelihood of you being wronged for your faith is, inc- is increasing day by day. The likelihood of you being wronged for your witness is going up, okay? Can I ask a question? Yeah. What is the key in the text that enable them to be controlled? They were right. They were right. And it says, and Peter filled Filled with the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. That's right. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Not the flesh. He was under the control of the Spirit as he responded, not the flesh. And that's the key. That is the key. 
That is the key. So let me give you an illustration. I, I thought about this week for uh, this this week for a while, and I thought this is a good illustration to bring up because it gives me a chance, I think, to speak personally about some things that I would like for you to understand about me as one of the pastors here. But it also, I think, gets to a deeper point that illustrates the point that I'm, I'm getting at. A couple of weeks ago, I guess it was last week, I posted on social media a particular Bible verse uh, with a little bit of commentary behind it. And, and um, typically when I post on social media, if it's not my kids or some food that I've made, um, it's a Bible verse. And lusting after. And lusting after food that I have made. It's a Bible verse that um, I, I post with some kind of commentary that goes along with it. And the reason I post like this is, is really twofold. One, um, these verses are verses that I am personally reading and meditating on that convict me that impact me as a follower of Christ. And I feel like if it impacts and convicts me, the likelihood of it impacting and convicting other Christians is probably pretty high. And whenever the Holy Spirit brings conviction from the, the Word of God, that's a good thing. The church is sanctified by that. That's how we grow in our faith. Um, secondly, I do it because I believe the Word of God is valuable. And anytime I can put it out in front of people to think on, specifically Christians, and that's really who I'm posting for, um, that's a valuable thing, to think and dwell on the Word of God. And it was brought to my attention, um, not in a, a bad way or an ugly way at all, but it was brought to my attention that that, um, that particular post was interpreted by a couple of individuals as a sort of passive shot at them, particularly because I guess they've, I don't know who this, these were, I don't know, I, I wasn't given names, but I'm assuming because they're, they've been very active and very vocal about things that are happening right now uh, politically and otherwise, and the verse was from Second Thessalonians about aspiring to live a, a quiet life. It wasn't me. It wasn't James. <laughs> okay. No, it wasn't James. It definitely wasn't James. And now, I bring this up to say this. Uh, one, I just, I just want to clear the air about this so that you all hear this from me. If you ever feel like something that I post on social media is aimed at you personally, I can assure you that it is not. 100% it is not. It is aimed, if, if at anyone, at me. It's a little bit narcissistic to even think that. It is. To some extent. It is, a little, it, for sure. But, but I get it too. And, and, and this is going to bring us to the second point in a moment. But, but it is not aimed at you. It is aimed at collectively us as believers. But it is not aimed at you. If you are doing something that I feel like is so bad that I have to individually address, I'm going to come to you one-on-one -on -one like the Scripture teaches. And I, and I hope you'll do the same for me. That's what Jesus demands of His people. And so it is not aimed at you. But secondly, it illustrates why I choose not to address certain topics on social media at all. And I've had that question asked of me and asked of James about me. You know, do these things matter? Does abortion matter? Do politics matter? Does the election matter? Do these things matter? They matter a great deal to me, a great deal to me. And I have a lot of extensive conversations with people about them. I just, I just personally, and hear me when I say this, I can't have a controlled witness on social media about them personally. Now, some of you can, okay, and that's great, but the few times that I have done this, I have tried, particularly with the issue of racism, I can tell you for certain I was not fully understood the way… It went over like a lead balloon, didn't I it? intended to be, yeah. <laughs> Both of us. And, and here's why, because you can't hear my body language, you can't hear my inflection, you can't hear my intonation, you can't see any of those things on this, but you can one-on-one. -on -one. 
And so that's the venue that I choose to have these discussions. That's the venue that I choose to have discourse over these topics. James, a lot more active than I am on social media with these issues, and I fully support that. I want you to hear that as well. I fully support it. I think it's great. I think he has a voice and a call to that, and that's wonderful, and he feels like he can have a controlled witness in that, and that is wonderful. I can't. And the key, the key is, folks, let's stop looking down our judgmental noses yes. at one another and how we engage the culture. Yeah. Because there is not one size that fits all. The key to this text is filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's allow one another in Christ to express that in different ways and right. leave each of us to be accountable to Him, not to each other on these issues. That's right. And it's a great deal like the eating meat sacrificed to idols yes. that had to be dealt with often. Paul said, there's nothing wrong with it. Look, you don't want to eat? Fine. Then quit judging him. You want to eat? Fine. Quit judging him. Let each one be accountable to God. And you know, pastors, we, we face it worse than, than anyone because there's this constant pressure on both sides where if I post too much Bible verses and too much witnessing, I, I get from my non-believing friends on social media. You're just sticking your yeah, head in the Yeah, you just, not, you just don't want to engage in the real issues at hand going on in the world. Mm -hmm. But then again, if we get on there and we start engaging in these topics, we hear from you people, well, you've lost direction. And you don't care about the gospel anymore. All you do is talk about politics or all you do is talk about this. So it's like we either hack off one group or hack off the other group. And at some point, we have to come together and just say, stop judging one another. I can promise you the gospel gets plenty of my mental thought time. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, because I do engage on these other issues is because as an American citizen, I am concerned about them. And some of them do intersect very closely with my Christian faith. That is my conviction. If it is not your conviction, you are not answerable to me. You are answerable to God. And I am not answerable to you. I am answerable to God, filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's listen to that and allow each other to express that under the leadership of God. Amen. And if it looks different than the way you do it, then Good. that's fine. <laughs> Good. That's fine. Yeah. But irregardless of that, and let me close with that. I'll give you five minutes. The yeah. fourth thing leads us then to what this is to be. It is to be a Christ-centered witness That's in right. our post-Christian world. That's right. When Peter was asked, by what power and by what name have you done this? In other words, what power and what name have you healed this man? He had a choice. He could have done God talk or he could do Jesus talk. Mm -hmm. Now get this. Mm -hmm. If Peter had responded, well, it was by the power of God and in the name of God, they would have said, hallelujah, glory to God. But the Sanhedrin was there. They were the very court that condemned Jesus because he would not just do God talk. The Caiaphas and Annas, Annas was the high priest when Jesus was crucified. Caiaphas now is the high priest, or maybe it's backwards. I've got that backwards. They're there. They're the ones that wanted Pilate to have Jesus crucified. They're waiting. All Peter and John had to do is do some God talk. <laughs> and because God talk is not offensive. No. You can, if, if, if they said, well, by the name of God, then Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and the priest would all say, glory to God then. Give God the glory. But when he chose to do Jesus talk, Christ talk, when his witness was not God-centered, because that can be very generic, who knows what you mean by God, when he knew, I have to be Jesus-centered, Christ-centered, this is what he said. He said, by 
the name of Jesus of Nazarene, whom you crucified and God raised by this name, this man stands before you well. See, folks, our witness in a post-Christian world doesn't need to be God-centered. No. Nobody ever came to Christ unless somebody mentioned the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. You can talk about God in our culture till the cows come home, and you will not be opposed, but you will be, in fact, applauded because who cares what you mean by God? But when you narrow it down and say, this message, this witness, this authority is the name of Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden, opposition. But you see, folks, if the goal of the gospel is for people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and we are not Christ-centered in our witness, how are they going to do that? Mm. It is the testimony all through the New Testament that this message is to be about Christ. It says, Philippians 2, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of what? The name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this very text, verse 12, Peter goes on after he mentions the name of Jesus, and he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. Did you get that? Now, he could have skated on this deal. All he had to do was do some God talk. And all you and I have to do out here in our world to skate by is just to talk about God. I just love God. Oh, I do too. I'm a very, I love God. I'm a very spiritual person. I'm a very spiritual person because I believe in God. Yeah. Well, what do you mean that by that? You can mean a doorknob. But when you say, no, there is one way, and that way is Jesus Christ, and without him there is no other name that is given by them, which we may be saved, all of a sudden you have presented a Christ centered witness. That's right. And we do it with compassion. We do it with control. But folks, dear people, we must do it with conviction. Our culture still needs to hear the message from God's people. Now more than ever. Unwatered down. Now more than ever. There are people in our culture now who have never darkened the door of a church one time have never heard the gospel one time, have never opened a Bible one time. And if they are to have an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ, somebody who knows him has to give a Christ-centered witness. Not just talking about God. Whenever I ask somebody about their salvation and all they want to do is talk about God, I automatically know here's somebody that does not know Jesus They don't know Jesus, and so I'll talk about Jesus. There is no other name given, whereby we, and the word little particle there in the Greek, delta epsilon iota means by which it is necessary. There is no other name given among, under heaven, among men, by which it is necessary to be saved. 
This is how we are to respond in a post-Christian world. And when the authorities said, well, just stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, <laughs> they said, if you'll just do that, we'll be okay. Yeah. Just don't say the J just word. Just don't, don't say the J word. <laughs> Peter responds in verse 19 and 20. Well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot bespeak of that which we have seen and heard. We can't do it. We have to speak. There's, there's where he spoke of God because it is God that sent the Son, Jesus. And he's told us to speak of Jesus. And it says, and when they had further threatened them, <laughs> they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. Well, the people were excited about this message, for all were praising God for what had happened. <laughs> Joe can walk now. <laughs> Praise right. the Lord. Amen. So here it is, folks. Come on. We live in a post-Christian world. Our world, our culture in America opposes everything about the Christian message. And much of that post-Christian thought has found its way into the church and has watered down the gospel, has watered down our conviction. And we must stand, yes, compassionate, yes, with conviction, yes, with control, but we must be Christ-centered. That's right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lesson of your word. Thank you for the power and the simplicity of these two Christ followers. When they faced that first opposition, there was never a question of whether they would back down, of whether they would cower in fear, of whether they would use words and speech that would be less problematic for them. But they stood with conviction, with control, and centered on Jesus, who is our hope. May you remind your people here at City on the Hill, even as we do the work of caring and compassion for people, that it is all ultimately about Jesus. And if we do not stay Christ-centered, all of our caring for people is nothing but worldly social work. Hmm. For what a tragedy it is if we help someone live better in this world and never tell them about Jesus and they enter into the next world separated from you forever. We pray for your power and your conviction in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. God bless you. I hope that our streaming continued the whole time. It did. Time. I, I kept checking good, on it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you all for being here. Yes. This is a better crowd than we had last week. Yeah. And if you want some of those to sit in the COVID-free section next week, you can confront one of these people over here and, and they'll sell you a seat. I'm quite sure they will. <laughs>